Thinking back about August of 2006, long time ago, right? But in August of 2006, uh, Karina and I, Karina's not here because Jackson is sick again. Uh, she might show her face to get Lexi, but Karina and I had just moved back uh, to Springfield, Missouri. It gets kind of confusing, so I have to look at my notes. Uh, follow me here. After just having moved back from Colorado, after just having moved back from Maryland, after just having moved to Maryland, after just having been married. So it was, uh, as you can imagine, a tumultuous time uh, in our young lives, to say the least. And we had married in the, in the summer of 2004, and we, I, I had been hired by a Baptist church in Maryland at the start of 2005. So I'd been, I'd been in the job just over a year when the senior pastor came to me and said, bad news, we can't afford to pay you next year. So... Uh, obviously not the greatest situation. Well, truthfully, they offered to pay me just a third of what I was making. And, uh, you know, I was young, and I was obviously pretty stunned. And I did the only thing that, you know, I was 23. I did the only thing that a 23-year, 24-year-old would do. I quit. So it was, it was looking back, not, a, not really a, a real equitable situation for me, but, you know, life is life. And so Karina and I, we packed up a moving truck, and her brother and, and then wife came out. We drove 2,000 miles from Maryland all the way back to Colorado, where, where we're from here. That obviously, as, as I mentioned, didn't last. And before long, about six months later, we packed up another moving van and drove to Springfield, Missouri, where I went to college and she went to college, in the hopes that uh, she could finish her, her college degree, and I could get back into the church job world. So, so upon arriving back, at, uh, back in Springfield, um, you know, to get a job, to make some money, I found a job at a Chase Call Center. Now, in Springfield, I'm not sure if it's still the case, but at least at, at 10 years ago, or 13 years ago, gosh, it's hard to believe it's been that long, uh, but in that time, call centers were like a big deal. There was a lot of call centers in Springfield, Missouri. Um, so, uh, you know, as, as any first week of orientation, uh, upon training, they got us, in, you know, in our classroom, and they had, you know, one of those big, kind of the, the giant postage notes, you know, that are about this big, and they gave us each one, they said, hey, we want you to, to, to tell us about yourself. So, you know, some of the more artsy and artistic people and creative people, they put all these creative designs and, you know, colors on theirs, telling about who they were, and I took a far more analytical approach. Uh, I laid mine out like a spreadsheet and said who I was, where I came from, and, and where I wanted to go. And, uh, you know, looking back, it's my goals that I most remember because I wasn't yet even 25, and I just assigned myself some pretty lofty goals. I wanted to earn my master's degree by the time I was 30, and I wanted to earn a doctorate by 40. Uh, now, I have actually met that goal. I, I didn't, uh, looking at, I got my master's degree before I turned 31, so I guess that counts. And I took, I guess I have three more years to get that doctorate, right? Uh, but that's besides the point. But I, thinking back, when I'm looking at, like, my audience, um, like, and I remember that class, it was kind of like, you know, single moms, 20-somethings, and like, you know, mid-career kind of job hoppers, they probably didn't know what to think of me. They're probably like, who the heck is this guy and why is he so, let's be honest, like, I don't know, straight-laced? 
that's a nice way, that's the nice, nicest thing I can say about myself, right, <laughs> in church. Um, you know, and I think back about it, and in that, in that time period of my life, I wasn't really, I wasn't really, I don't know if proud is the right word, but I really wasn't like happy with who I was or where I was at. And it wasn't, it wasn't like I was a bad person or anything. It's just that, that I wasn't really that interesting of a person. And truthfully, I may not still be, but, but hey, I've come to be okay with that, right? So back then, I, I just wasn't okay with that fact that I wasn't really that interesting of a person, and I hadn't really done anything that compelling. But I had grown up in this culture that was all about being an interesting person and doing something compelling. And even though I was only 23, 24, I didn't have anything to talk about or to say or, to, or you know, to be. So I thought to myself, boy, you know what? If I can get an education, that'll be my ticket to acclaim. That'll be my, that'll be my thing I can hang my hat on. Now, sure, I, I enjoyed education. I, I enjoyed learning, but beneath the surface... It wasn't just that love of learning that compelled me. Really, it was a feeling of inadequacy, a feeling of being less than. And the fact of the matter is, the fact of the matter is, I was ashamed of, to some extent, I was ashamed of who I was, how little I'd done, and all the things I was not in comparison to my peers. You know, I thought if I could just earn a master's degree, people will take me seriously. If I could earn a doctorate, people will take me seriously. If I could just get this piece of paper, people will take me seriously. You know, it's funny, um, when I finally did earn that master's degree, I was working at a warehouse job, a real high-status job, and I was working for an owner. We did not see eye-to-eye hardly ever. And upon finally completing that master's degree, I came back from graduation. The owner said, hey, did you get that piece of paper? And, you know, while it was somewhat flippant in in thinking about how much time, energy, and effort I had put into that seminary degree, yet considering the many ways and many times I was depending on that master's degree to confer upon me a sense of worthiness, adequacy and goodness. In reality, it was simply, in the end, just a piece of paper. And looking back, as much as I wanted to, res- I wanted respect from him, that boss, that owner. And looking back, there's, in many ways, I didn't even respect myself in a lot of ways. I was counting on a piece of paper to do it for me. You know, chasing after achievement, no matter what form, as the only pathway to love and acceptance, could never free me from those feelings of shame that at times threatened to overwhelm me. And sometimes they did really threaten to overwhelm me. Shame. Shame is that visceral sense that we are unlovable, inadequate, and irreparably broken. And whether it be achievement, money, power, sex, addiction, whatever, there's nothing, nothing external to us that we can do that will fulfill that deep sense within us that we are lovable, worthy, and good. There's nothing we can say to ourselves 
And trust me, I had my mantra. There's nothing we can say to ourselves, nothing we can do for ourselves, nothing we can buy for ourselves. And some people try, right? That will ultimately overcome that sense of shame. You know what's interesting? I think that for all the hubris, how do you say that word? Hubris? Is that my saying that right? For all the hubris, for all the grandiose, for all the, if I can say it, exhibitionism in our culture, in our society, I am convinced that we are, as an American culture, deeply riddled with shame. You know, I was thinking about Mother's Day and how much of moms are just constantly shamed. Not a good enough mom, you're not productive enough, not in shape enough. You know, you're supposed to have the career and the great kids and, you know, the excellent hobby on the side. And if you somehow miss up on one of those things, boy, the, they come out, you know, the fangs from the other moms come out for y'all. It's a lot. It's a lot. And I think, uh, you know, just from an outsider perspective, not as a mom, of course, it seems like the only good thing I can see is that at least some of the moms, y'all, have begun to push back and say, oh, we're not, I'm not falling for those shame tactics anymore. Some of those moms have started to push back and say, I'm going to be okay with who I am. And I think that's a good thing because I look at uh, kind of my own cultural context, uh, young white males, straight males, and to, to be honest, I think there's just as much shame in, our, in my context as well. And I think what's worse is, is young white males haven't at all, at all, begun to deal with their level of shame. You know, I think about how in American culture, because there's that level of shame within young white men, we, and I, I'm going to speak of we, including me in that, we found, this, we've, we found this new way of dealing with this shame that we can't quite grasp. It's, we call it, from the outside perspective, tox, toxic masculinity. You know, so if, if we're strong enough, if we have big enough personality, if we're popular enough with women, we can mask and cover up that deep sense of shame within ourselves that we're not good enough, we're not smart enough, we're not popular enough. We're not attractive enough. But the thing is, when it comes to shame, when we have that deep sense of shame within ourselves, if we're using something to cover it up, whether it be achievement, whether it be money, whether it be purchases, whether it be, you know, an obloviated sense of masculinity, if we're looking for something else to, to, to take care of our deep-down feelings of shame, eventually that shame that we're covering up or trying to hide turns into blame. Because really, we don't want to blame ourselves for our own misfortune, especially when it's so easy to blame others. And boy, are we, we are, many of us, so good at blaming others. I mean, again, speaking from my, my cultural context, young white men, we blame wow, feminism. Man, those women out there are ruining my masculinity. We blame liberalism. Oh, those liberals, they are ruining my masculinity. 
ruining my power as a man. We blame immigrants. Well, they're taking away all our jobs. But the more we play this blame game, the more and more we find ourselves insulated from the care and concern for others, about the care and concern for real people and their struggles. So we can, we can separate ourselves. By separating ourselves from our own feelings of shame, we separate ourselves from other people and their real struggles. Poor people, they're just lazy. Addicts, they're weak. Migrants, they're all just criminals. This culture of shame and blame creates such a deep sense of inadequacy within us that we are incapable of seeing the humanity within one another. I mean, really, how else, how else could we explain our apathy if I can be frank, our apathy towards people fleeing poverty, destitution, and violence. Our carelessness towards children. How else do we explain that? When we are incapable of seeing our own worth, we lose the ability to see the worth within our fellow human beings. So what do we do? How do we move past our feelings of shame? How can we stop finding others to blame? And how can we escape this downward spiral? Because let me tell you, it is a downward spiral of shame and blame. I want us to look at uh, John chapter 9. So the book of John uh, chapter 9, and I'm going to be, uh, like I said, if you have your Bible, you're welcome to, to read along with me. I'll have it on the screen here this morning, but... I'm actually reading from the the message translation this morning. And uh, the whole arc of this story is that Jesus, he heals, perhaps you remember the story, Jesus heals a blind man and he sends him uh, to the pool of Siloam to wash the mud out of his eyes and and then he can, he's healed, he can see. And then uh, everybody's kind of disputing who healed him. But for the sake of time and brevity, we're not going to get into that whole story this morning, but we're going to read the first seven verses. So it starts out saying, Walking down the street, Jesus saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, causing him to be born blind? Jesus said, You're asking the wrong question. You're looking for someone to blame. There is no cause and effect here. Look instead for what God can do. We need to be energetically at work for the one who sent me here, working while the sun shines. When the night falls, the workday is over. For as long as I am in the world, there is plenty of light. I am the world's light. He said this and then spit in the dust, made a clay paste with the saliva, rubbed the paste on the man's blind eyes and said, Go, wash at the pool of Siloam. Siloam means scent, by the way. The man went and washed and saw. Pretty fabulous story, right? So again, disciples are walking down the street. They see a man, blind man, begging for help. And the disciples ask rather reasonably, why was this man blind? Because in that time period, blindness or punishment punishment or misfortune was often considered to be a punishment uh, for in, in one's own life or one's family. 
So whatever misfortune or mishealth, the disciples were trained and accustomed to thinking, like, whose fault is it that this guy is suffering? The disciples just wanted to know who's to blame here. No one. No one, Jesus says. And Jesus states rather simply, this is just an opportunity for us to show God's love and compassion to him. And that's what Jesus does, right? Jesus stops, and he looks, and he acts with compassion. The man is healed, and he can see again. Jesus heals the man. Having had this perfect opportunity, right, to lay blame, to find fault, to cast a burden, Jesus does none of that. What we see instead is that Jesus is a healer rather than a blamer. Jesus is a healer rather than a blamer. A core tenet, I think we'd say, a core tenet of Christianity is that in Jesus we see God, we see God revealed, right? Yet despite time after time of Jesus showing love and compassion, we're still taught that God looks at us with blame and shame as though we're unlovable, inadequate, and irreparably damaged. And because of our unlovableness, our inadequacy, our brokenness, God had to find someone to blame. God had to find someone at fault, so God had to find someone to carry the load of shame so God placed all of this shame on Jesus. But that really doesn't compute. If it's true, if it's true that in Jesus we see God revealed, then doesn't it follow too that God is not a blamer but instead a healer? If it's true that in Jesus we see God revealed, then doesn't it follow that God too is not angry but compassionate? If it's true that in Jesus we see God revealed, then doesn't that change everything? The heart of the gospel, I believe, the heart of the gospel is that God loves you because God loves you. God loves you because God loves you. No ifs or buts, no strings attached. God didn't have to get past your unloveliness, your unworthiness, your damage. God didn't have to kill Jesus to first like you. No, simply, God loves you and more. God wants you to know that you are loved. So here's the thing. Jesus changes our minds about ourselves by changing our minds about God. When you know that God truly loves you, you can truly love yourself. In Jesus, you see that you are beloved, not blameworthy. In Jesus, you see how God sees you and looks at you with great love and compassion. In Jesus, you see how much God cares for you so you know you are loved beyond, beyond imagination. I think about how much the message of the crucifixion is that God would stop at nothing, 
nothing to showcase God's love for us. I was thinking about this verse this week, Romans 5, 8. But God proves his love for us and that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. I believe the message of the crucifixion is that God would stop at nothing, nothing to showcase God's love and compassion and the power of the resurrection, the power of the the power of, of Jesus' resurrection is that nothing, absolutely nothing, can stop God's love and compassion. Not evil, not death, nothing. And that's why I believe that Easter changes everything. You know, ultimately I believe that we break the cycle of shame and blame by knowing that we are loved. So I want us to know deeply, powerfully within our own person that we are loved and valued by God. Those feelings of inadequacy and ill repair need not have the last word. The cycle of shame and blame, it can be stopped. The callousness and carelessness need not continue because God does not look at us with disdain and shame. God looks at us with love and compassion. But you know, that's not the end of the story. Knowing that we are loved, it frees us to love others. Remember what Jesus said to the disciples. We are to be energetically at work for the one who sent me. I believe we, you and I, we have a part to play in making things whole as we say in, in, in our tradition that we're a part of, Mission Gathering Christian Church, we are a movement for wholeness in a broken world. I believe when we look upon someone with compassion, when we offer forgiveness and rather than ascribing blame, blame, when we seek reconciliation rather than furthering division, we are being a part of the healing work of God on earth so powerfully begun in Jesus. Jesus changes our mind about God, and by doing so, Jesus changes our mind about ourselves and others. In Jesus, we see who we really are, God's beloved.